I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. The Space Needle is the icon of Seattle, but not many people know it's recently undergone a dramatic $100 million renovation. Even more are likely unaware of the series of events that influenced its original design. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. And this is Jason. What's up, guys? And you're listening to Spaces Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us again. Uh, today we are discussing the Space Needle. We're going to do a, a little bit of a landmark sort of historical site series, I guess we can call it. Uh, try and focus in on, on one site, one, one building, a landmark that, that everybody's familiar with. So we're going to talk about the Space Needle today. Which so we've when all was... just learned this morning, only one of three of us have been to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, Jason and Michelle have not been to the Space Needle. I have. Do you guys know people that have gone? And yes. Heard, my, like, kind of got... Yeah, my parents actually just went last September. Okay. So they were there very recently. Um, I will say that I haven't been to the Space Needle, but I have been to the Sky Tower in Auckland, New Zealand, which I just read as I'm doing a little research here. It's the tallest freestanding structure in the Southern Hemisphere. Huh. And it actually stands at 
328 meters, or for us Americans, 1,076 feet. Okay. Uh, the 25th tallest freestanding structure in the world. And what's interesting, and I'm sure we'll get into it in a minute, is the Space Needle dwarfs in comparison. And I wouldn't have thought that coming into this recording, I would have thought that the Space Needle stood a lot taller. But I've never been there, so maybe that's why my perception is all wrong. Yeah, when when you're there in Seattle, um, we, we went, I want to say two years ago maybe, um, and we walked. We walked everywhere, and walking down the street, you could see the Space Needle kind of off in the distance. Now, why did you go to Seattle, though? Just because? Like you wanted uh, we to, did like to Seattle? A, we did a Northwest tour, a okay. uh, little trip. So we stopped in Portland and went to Seattle and then went up to Vancouver, actually. Okay, got it. Um, so we were walking around and going to the Space Needle, and you can kind of see it um, off in the distance. But surprisingly, you, you get like little peaks of it. Uh, looking past the buildings so you start to get an idea that it's not that big okay uh and then when you start to actually walk up on it you can it it's not that big at all <laughs> it's surprisingly <laughs> i mean it, i feel a joke coming on I'll be do, you, do you know how many meters it is i don't i don't know off the top of my head by the way, we're, Jason, why, are we, why are we going over meters? Like, you realize we're in the U.S., right? <laughs> you know, I we just don't got, do the metric well, system here. And we should, really, no, we honestly. Shouldn't. No, we shouldn't. It's, it's actually pretty remarkable when we when you start traveling internationally and you start to realize that Everybody we except us. are the only country in the entire <laughs> world right? that is on imperial system. <laughs> it's, it's pretty absurd. But anyhow, I'm going off of meters because we're the, than the research that I'm reading that is in front of me right now, my little cheat sheet. Uh, is in meters, so not doing the conversion. <laughs> Got it. Okay. You're pretty smart. I thought maybe you could do that on the fly. I mean, just do 184 times roughly three, and you'll get to your feet. Five. I'm out. <laughs> 520. 64, 520. 540. It's probably roughly 540 feet. Okay. But when you get there, you, you can actually tell it's really not that big. Although it's sort of a big structure um you can tell it's not that tall so yeah you kind of got me off on a tangent not, i don't not know that where tall, i was going but, but absolutely a landmark i mean think about all those gray's anatomy episodes <laughs> i didn't <laughs> watch did you just do that i didn't watch a single episode Come of that on. okay oh, I, even I'm i watched a couple to, of i am drawing lie. to all of our listener but, base right now but like if that's the case though it is unfair because i feel like the girl the girls had all these guys that they liked but the guys i was like come on man there really wasn't anything there for us <laughs> It, you know, it is an icon of Seattle. If you show the Space Needle, you automatically know Seattle. Uh, I agree. And I think it's an icon of the Pacific Northwest, really. Yeah. And yeah, that's kind of the, that's the point of a, of a landmark um, is to give that kind of wayfinding um, and an identity to a certain area. I don't know. You had some, some opinions. I on... just don't get them. I mean, <laughs> it's like, why? I, I mean, what's think, the real like? What's the real point? Like, so, I mean, so I actually think they're really cool, and maybe part I think of the, the painted reason, rocks and the big Tyrannosaurus Rex and stuff like that out in Palm Desert is those cooler. are cool. Those are cool as well because but it's a dinosaur. I, I have to say one of <laughs> one of my favorite things about these types of landmarks is one, they're they're just great icons for sort of a, a city's identification in some respects from yeah. an architectural standpoint. Mm-hmm. 
But I think as a tourist, when you go to a city that has an observation deck, um, it just gives you such a different perspective of what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, think about like the Empire State Building. Think about the Sears you're Tower. Saying, you're saying from a view standpoint. From a view standpoint, you yeah. get up there and it's, it's Ladders can do that just, too, by the way. Yeah, you're not going 200 <laughs> feet in the air. It's only 12 feet for a ladder. <laughs> And that's Jason's vantage point. <laughs> yep. Gives us a lot of perspective on, on who he is. No, just kidding. Um, yeah, so I just think it's just really, I, I think the observation deck component is is really fascinating. But to Jason's point, kind of what is the actual point of some of these monuments? Yeah. It's a, it's a good question. Like, I mean, like, here's the thing, right? Like, you go to, what is it, Barstow, where you got the massive, like, uh, the thermometer. The thermometer, right? Yeah. Okay, fine. Put a... Not Barstow, that's in Baker. Baker, whatever. Yeah. I mean, two places nobody wants to go, right? So <laughs> my point is, go ahead and put up some massive landmark because you have plenty of space that nobody wants to inhabit anyways. I kind of get it, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But you put these big old monuments open in, 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 in places where it's like, it could be useful. You know, like, I mean, how useful is that? I, I guess it's cool, but I'm kind of like, eh. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, it just it just doesn't hit it for me. You know what I mean? Like even like even in Washington, when you've got like you know all the different monuments in there, I get that because they're historical things and they're mm-hmm. kind of like from a respect standpoint and you know whatever. Like I get that, mm-hmm. but some of these other ones just like it, it's a you know what it is to me. It's like a whole thing with guys where it's like you know I can do this and I can do that, and I can do this because <laughs> then you go over to Dubai or whatever and they've got all these massive structures. Yeah, right? it's like it's a total measuring stick. You know what I mean? Like that's what it is. But I think that's exactly what the Space Needle was, right? So if we go back to the history, are you going to talk about that, Demetrius? Yeah, so... Um, I, yeah, so... <laughs> yeah. We're on fire. I like these morning recordings. Yeah. Yeah. We got a lot I'm to awake. say. Sorry. Yeah, I know. We should <laughs> do this more often. Uh, yeah, we jumped, we jumped right in. So we'll get into that history in a, in a second, but just want to kind of tie off this part of the discussion. But I think one of the, the reasons, really, uh, a lot of these landmarks not all but a a good chunk of them kind of started from um expositions uh, throughout history so it was about celebrating technology of the time and and you know um exploring what what could be possible and it's kind of a a motivating factor um as well as being a a um icon for that for that city or that location so I think that's kind of where the the thought process comes, and a, a lot of these things uh, help generate and explore new technologies and concepts that are used into construction going forward. Um, so I think that's a good part of it. Um, well, the other part I was going to wonder too is the timing of when these things are built. Yeah, so like a lot of times they're commissioned by you know government commissions projects to create some jobs and infuse some cash back into the economy at times that are needed. Mm-hmm. I'm almost wondering if there's some of these ones that were created at times like that, where it's like, okay, you know, we're in a little bit of a, a rough spot with the economy and mm-hmm. we've got X bill or whatever it is where we can infuse cash into, you know, the local economy. Let's erect a monument you know mm-hmm. what I mean, or something like that when you're not necessarily going to be building whatever else or your roads are taken care of or something like that. I, I'm curious, you know, if we were to look back on it, what, what times those were done at, because mm-hmm. sometimes that happens too this will be a good point to uh to do a, a little break and uh give all of our listeners a little bit of idea of where the space needle came from get a little more detail on that and to understand that 
You gotta go back in time. July 31st, 1952. I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucers. This is Air Force Major General John A. Sanford's statement on flying saucers. The Air Force interest in this problem has been due to our feeling of an obligation to identify and analyze to the best of our ability anything in the air that may have the possibility of threat or menace to the United States. We have received and analyzed between one and 2,000 reports. Of this great mass of reports, we have been able adequately to explain the great bulk of them. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, space was at the forefront of many Americans' minds. However, there have been a certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. We have, as of date, come to only one firm conclusion with respect to this remaining percentage, and that is that it does not contain any pattern of purpose or of consistency that we can relate with any, to any conceivable threat to the United States. In addition to these reports, it was throughout media. Films like Destination Moon, the Day the Earth Stood Still, and Forbidden Planet. Comics like Mystery in Space, Space Adventures, and Spaceman. Then, on October 4th, 1957. This sound was heard from space for the first time. The following day, newspaper headlines across the US declared, Russians launch first artificial moon. Soviet fires Earth's satellite into space. Sight red baby moon over US. And satellite fired by Russia, circling us 15 times a day. This put everything into question for Americans. On the heels of World War II, Russia shocked the world by successfully launching the first satellite into orbit. This news particularly sent shockwaves through America, as just two years prior, both countries had announced that they would launch satellites into orbit. But this unexpected turnaround from Russia weakened a sense of technological superiority in America. Had the US already fallen behind? It alarmed the Eisenhower administration and created intense fear and anxiety amongst the public. Rumors even swept through the country about radio transmissions of distressed Russian voices in space. Sputnik, while just 22 inches in diameter, slightly larger than a basketball, signaled technological advancement, including rocket technology. Just a month later, Sputnik 2 successfully launched into orbit, and there was a horrifying story of its doomed passenger a stray dog named Laika, who was knowingly given a one-way ticket on this flight. In addition to this awful story, this launch displayed that Russia could send heavier payloads. America did launch a satellite into orbit a few months later called the Explorer 1, but in rapid succession, Russia sent the first probe to the moon, put the first man in space, then the first woman, and took the first spacewalk by 1961. Meanwhile, the World's Fair, an international exhibition that's intended to showcase innovation and achievements of nations, 
was set to return to the U.S. for the first time in 20 years and would be hosted in Seattle in 1962. Considering the climate, it's now clear how the fair centerpiece would soon be influenced. The overall theme came out that it was supposed to be about the future and it was supposed to be about the next generation um, of what's to come. Brad Klauser from Edify Studios, a studio based in Seattle, sat down with me to discuss the scene in Seattle at the time. Things of flying cars and um, really beyond-the-box thinking. Think of the Jetsons and those types of things back in the day that that was supposed to be kind of brought to the real world. And in, in about a year-and-a-half time frame, they designed the Space Needle, they erected the Space Needle, and it was completed. N- no one really knew about the implementation of what was to come. So when it went from sketch to all of a sudden this vertical structure going 600 feet in the air, it was what is happening. So it was more of just a surprise for the overall culture of the Pacific Northwest. And it was really, it was really a cool time, actually. It all started with a sketch on a bar napkin, which kind of looks like a tree to me. It was drawn by Edward E. Carlson, a hotel executive and chief organizer of the 1962 World's Fair. He envisioned a dominant central structure, which he called the Space Needle. Originally inspired by a broadcast tower, its form evolved into a UFO, a tethered balloon, and even a cocktail shaker. But it was architect John Graham Jr. who focused the design towards a flying saucer-shaped top, and architect Victor Steinbrick who came up with the tower shape based on an abstract sculpture called the Feminine One. Just 13 months before the opening of the World's Fair, the site for the Space Needle was finally determined and the complex construction, which was managed by the Howard S. Wright Construction Company, had to progress quickly. The hardest areas and the most complicated areas of the Space Needle is there was really only um, uh, one steel fabricator in the entire Northwest, and they didn't necessarily source a lot of their steel locally. So they had to actually source a lot of that. Uh, what actually made what made the Space Needle was just primarily a steel structure. Um, uh, they had to bring it in from overseas. So it was a it was a quite a, a, a big effort when you're actually looking at logistically how it was going to be built. So not anywhere on the West Coast was there a tower crane anywhere that could actually build a 600 foot structure. So what they did is you actually have, if you look at the Space Needle, the core of the Space Needle is this is a is a vertical steel truss that actually resembles um, what today is known as a tower crane. So they actually use the center of the Space Needle to actually build itself. The other part of it was is that it was the largest pour in, um, I would say, about 25 years, even after it was built, ever, ever kind of amounted. So there was about 17 to 18 trucks a day um, for about three months that was visiting the site. Once completed, the foundation weighed as much as the Space Needle itself, establishing the center of gravity just five feet above the ground. Playing up the space theme, the final coats of paint were dubbed astronaut white for the legs, orbital olive for the core of the structure, re-entry red for the halo, and galaxy gold for the sunburst and pagoda roof. Everybody's planning to see Seattle's spectacular $100 million World's Fair. Welcome to the future and all the wonders of the 21st century in the greatest preview the world has ever seen. Take away a head, look at tomorrow, just as 
as if you were there. Rocket ride to Mars in the breathtaking U.S. Science Pavilion. See the fabulous city of tomorrow in the gigantic, wallless, pillarless Coliseum. Have fun with the happy-go-lucky crowd. For six wonderful months. Back up your family and for the It's the big thrilling adventure of a lifetime. The Space Needle officially opened on April 21st, 1962. Later that year, John F. Kennedy would give this famous speech. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. And back at the Space Needle, the structure would continue to evolve, adding an event space in 1982 and undergoing upgrades for safety. In 2000, a $20 million revitalization project introduced a pavilion-level, space-based retail store, Sky City restaurant, observation deck improvements, exterior lighting additions, exterior painting, and more. Over time, between the 60s and through the 70s, 80s, 90s, there was a couple of renovations that were done to it to actually make it more safe. Um, In the 60s, if you actually go back and look at some of the pictures, it was basically just a 42-inch rail that existed around the observation deck with a completely open sky. Like, the view and the feeling and the wind was all right in front of your face. And so over time, they realized how unsafe it was of just a 42-inch railing that kind of just existed around this area. So over time, it became all of a sudden there was this like these cables that existed up on these steel bars that kind of came across vertically. Then then they kind of went horizontally. And and really over time, it kind of felt like this, you'd enter this observation deck, but it was like this, this kind of outdoor prison. The Century Project commenced in September 2017 where the team aimed to harken back to the original concept. The reason why you went to the Space Needle when back in the 60s and 70s is because it was like a feeling that you couldn't replicate anywhere. So for the renovation of the Space Needle, um, it actually took about seven years of an overall design effort. And Olsen Kundig um, was the designer, um, a very well-known, respected architect here in the, in the Northwest, the overall main thing for Olsen Kundi was to restore the feeling of 1962. And they brought a company that's very, that is known for very intricate designs um, and very detail oriented by the name of Front Inc. And and they brought the designer and kind of that, that architect together to bring what is now kind of what you'll see as far as the glass floor and those things. But They've, they've put all low, low iron glass in the indoor observation deck space, and they've widened each of, this, of the glass lights to allow for that overall majestic feeling to, to immediately come out where you can actually feel the understanding of it. There's not this jail experience anymore. They've removed all of those obstructions, and you really get the magnificence as you come out of that elevator. And then as you walk into, walk into the outdoor observation deck, 
there's these triple ply lamy um, glass walls and that are just ultra clear glass, all three lights and all laminated together for safety. And then there's about a, about a three and a half inch gap between each one of the lights. So as you step between those little spaces, you feel the wind like it's like, like, oh, wait a minute. Like you have to kind of like escape back into the safety. And and it, and then there's what's really cool is they actually have these glass benches that sit right on this. And so the that vertical wall is canted out um, about 15 degrees, maybe a little bit under 15 degrees, 10 to 15 degrees, somewhere around there. And so you can actually stand up against that 15 degree wall and look straight down. So it's a, it's a place where all of a sudden you can lean out and like your whole entire body weight can lean on that glass and there, and it, it is freaky. Like it's not anything to be messed around with. And then they have these glass benches that sit next to it. If you're a little less daring, but what front did is, is they took that bench seat that would traditionally be totally level and they actually made it perpendicular to the canted wall. So as you're, as you're, as you as you sit down on top of it, you're like, oh, great, I'll sit down on the edge. And all of a sudden, it's just above where knee height happens, where you slide back into that wall. And you kind of like for like a, a good second and a half, you go <gasps> and you catch your breath. But each one of those moments was there to actually design on purpose to invoke that feeling again. Landmarks are recognizable features that can be used simply for navigation or act as a symbol. These structures are a reflection of our society and culture and a snapshot of the times that they were constructed. The Space Needle is clearly the icon of Seattle, and Brad perfectly conveys the importance of these icons to society. Architecture is something that actually shapes our society and is a reflection of actually who are we as a culture internally. I, it's from a fundamental belief, I, I think that architecture has that. So specifically for the Space Needle, I would say that that uh, if you were to look at that classic um, Seattle skyline picture that I think everybody can kind of imagine in their brain, I've seen these, some of these images where these architects have done this before is they take that space needle out of that skyline and it instantly becomes a city that you don't recognize. And so I think it has a world renowned thumbprint. And I think that it's up to us in the architectural industry, um, be it from a product basis or um, engineering basis or overall design basis is that we actually have that responsibility of protecting those thumbprints, protecting those identities and that culture, because we are a fairly young um, country worldwide. And I think we need to take care of that from an overall standpoint. And I think Seattle Space is a perfect example for that. So two part, two part thing. Um, when we were talking about, you know, the, the point or purpose and Basically, if people are still interested, sort of, as I think what you're sort of getting to is yeah. uh, interested in the landmarks and, and those type of sites. I saw a study that shows pretty high percentage. It said 87% of millennials uh, utilize Facebook or social media as inspiration for trips. And uh, like meaning they look at that to see where they want to go. Yeah. Okay. It, what I think it really is 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 it Instagrammable? Yeah. You know, is can you <laughs> can you capture the same photo or duplicate the same photo that you've seen on social media? I mean, like can make we, your IG life your real life. Can Can yeah, you do that maybe. yoga pose Correct. on the cliff face or? That's right. 
whatever the case is. I will say Monument, it's hard to capture that Instagram moment with something <laughs> like the Space Needle. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? You've got the... You can you can capture it from you know the viewpoint of looking down on the world below you. Yeah, but yeah, maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe you can do a yoga pose in front of uh, in front of the window. <laughs> so so I, I don't do yoga. Corrected. Just so we're clear, like I don't. Do uh, I stand corrected. I I could be wrong on that. I did do a bar class with my wife the other day. That whooped my. That was hard. Just saying. So, <laughs> so where I'm going with that? I'm just gonna ignore that. <laughs> So where I'm going with that is, uh, one, when when we went, uh, my wife and I, when we went uh, a couple of years ago, they had um, created this thing. So when you when you walk in, uh, there's a long line to get into the to get to the elevator and go up to the top of the the observation can you deck. Take the stairs? Is there stairs? That you <laughs> there are stairs, but you can't take the stairs. <laughs> it's just a service okay. stair. Um, so you wait in this long line and once you get to the front of the line, before you get onto the elevator, they take a picture of you and your group and then you hop on the elevator, get up to the observation deck. And once you get there, they have these kiosks all over the observation deck and you can pull up your picture that they took and you swap out backgrounds um so you're like they take the photo on a green screen and you can swap out the backdrop of the photo and you can instantly share it from there to your facebook or instagram or whatever so they're trying to create that instagram sort of the background though is is it's very cheesy (laughs) yeah i was gonna say so it's not like a real time of the day that you're there right (laughs) so you could be there on a rainy day and then yeah the background picture that you're being inserted into is a sunny day yeah okay yeah it's very very cheesy so it's a canned it's a canned (laughs) background yeah yeah uh i was just no go ahead keep going (laughs) and then uh we just missed it i think we were there june 2017 and they just started uh what was a 100 million dollar renovation of the the building and with that they did one thing that will be instagrammable is a the i think it's the world's first rotating glass floor that's right that's really cool <laughs> so, that's they have, so so that is there now or it's yes okay that's there now so one of the things that the sky tower had in Auckland um, is they had glass floors, not the whole thing, but there were portions of it that were glass, you know, call it a meter wide or a yard wide and, uh, you know, maybe four or five feet long. Mm -hmm. And you could walk across that glass portion Mm. while you're, you know, over 650 feet in the air. Yeah. Yeah. So they have, um, yeah, it's the first, uh, while you're looking for that, at the Space yeah. Needle, is there a restaurant still at the top? Yes. There is, okay. And I think the, the revolving glass floor is part of the restaurant, Okay. Um, from what I understand. So, yeah, they have this revolving glass floor, uh, and it's 500, so the, you know, the height of the building, just about 500 feet above the ground. You guys won't know this, but... Uh, on the observation, I guarantee you that's going to be the case with me. <laughs> <laughs> on the observation uh, deck, when you actually walk outside of the the tower, um, 
there was this they called it the cage Mm -hmm. so there's this kind of metal um like security structure yeah for for security uh to prevent people from obviously jumping either to their death or trying to uh skydive or whatever off of the structure uh so they've replaced that with all glass now Hmm. so it has this it's all about um increasing the views from the the structure in all different sorts of ways so they have the glass on the the exterior instead of the cage now the revolving glass floor some of the windows that were there they increased in size and uh take take a minute to appreciate that though yeah 500 feet in the air and these dudes are positioning glass panels and everything else if you will off the edge of a structure <laughs> 500 feet in the air yeah that's the stuff that wakes me up kind of like when you see like high like high rises being built yeah and these guys are like on the edge you know granted strapped in like if you could think about it like you're leaning over the edge and there's nothing but like that's insane i mean just the, just the logistics to get the materials up there yeah, I mean, check dude. this. The floor is 37 tons. Dude. <laughs> that's bananas. I mean, that's so cool. Yeah. So cool. And and just think about the mechanics to yeah. to rotate that too. Yeah. To handle that kind of system at that weight. Uh not only getting those panels up there and then just getting all of that fixed in. Um that's bananas. They have a, a the turntable has 12 different motors to operate it. Um, and these motors rely on 48 rollers to ensure smooth rotation and minimize friction and wear. Um, so it's an incredible system that they put in there. I mean, if you think about it, it's really not necessarily what they're doing that costs a hundred million dollars. It's all the engineering behind yeah. what they're doing. Like you could do that on the ground for far less, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was just, but it's just crazy. The amazing thing is the hundred million, you know, that's today. So when it was finished in 1962, mm-hmm. the cost of the space needle yeah. was reported at four and a half million. Yeah. But innovations or renovations are always way more expensive than the original construction. Yeah. <laughs> so not to that degree, but <laughs> so on the structural glass, they have 10 layers of structural glass for that. Um, just wanted to mention that before I forgot, but, um, so if just one cracks, you're cool. <laughs> it's all right. Relax. <laughs> yeah. But I was going to say the, the hundred million actually contributed, I believe to, they are now LEED certified too. Hmm. Um, so they replaced all of the electrical and then uh, all the plumbing to to include, um, you know, low flow and uh, what is it, water sense um, brand uh, equipment, and then swapped out all of their kitchen equipment in the in the uh, restaurant for. Uh, was it was it called um, Energy Star? Like high efficiency. Yeah. So um, so yeah, they're actually lead gold certified now, which I found shocking because it's such an old building. Yeah. Um, but they're estimating that they're conserving forty uh, percent of uh, water to comparable buildings wow. or structures. That's pretty cool. And then uh, saved what was it ninety. I think they're saving 70 to 90% on uh, energy with the upgrades and lighting. So they should pay it back in like 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> Probably less than that. Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, I, was, I was shocked that it had gone 
through that length of, yeah. of upgrades but and I guess everything. if you're gonna do it you might as well right yeah i wonder if any of those upgrades had anything to do with structural upgrades and the reason I ask is, again, going back to some of the research I was doing in the early 60s when the Space Needle was uh, built, one of the things that they said is that they actually, for wind speed, so, you know, Seattle can be a windy place, mm-hmm. uh, and Seattle is also prone to earthquakes. Um, and one of the things that I had read was that the Space Needle was built to withstand wind speeds of 200 miles per hour. Uh, which is actually double the requirements of what the building code was in 1962. <laughs> wow. And so building codes, as, as we all know, are constantly changing. And yeah. every year or every couple of years, there's an upgrade or an update. And I just, I, I wonder what the building code is today relative mm-hmm. to wind speeds and if the Space Needle is still well above or well ahead of what today's building code is. I mean, in 62, it was double. It'd just be interesting to see today. I, I, don't, I don't know where we find that out but yeah uh yeah i'd have to check code on that but i imagine they've um if they were under code they had to have some sort of retrofit um to fix it and that may be part of the reason but they were way ahead of code so i just wonder if yeah i mean now today yeah, yeah yeah um on that same point you know it says that the Space Needle sways only one inch per 10 miles per hour of wind speed. Wow. I mean, that is a solid... sheer strength. Man. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which then takes you to, you know, what actually is in the ground. Oh, um, man, yeah. Because that goes into... <clears throat> excuse me. That goes into the earthquake stability. Yeah. And so do you have the numbers on that, Demetrius? I don't. So the hole that was dug was 30 feet deep and 120 feet across. Jeez. Okay, so the foundation is 5,850 tons. Oh, gosh. Which includes 250 tons of reinforced steel. That's bananas. Yeah. Which, you know, maybe speaks to why it only sways one inch for every 10 miles per hour of wind. Yeah. (laughs) They may have um, limited the height for that reason as well uh didn't want to get too tall just because potential of sway on that yeah it's exponential too yeah um a lot of concrete i wonder if the mob buried anybody in there (laughs) the mob's not in seattle (laughs) they're everywhere (laughs) (laughs) yeah but other than that uh some of the other renovation stuff um i don't think many people know but on the top of the uh, space needle, there used to be a torch. Yeah. That uh, that would Didn't light, yeah. and it would they would send certain chemicals through to like change the color and make the look different. Um, but they would have to send people workers up every once in a while to kind of clean the all the soot out and make sure it's clean and doesn't burn down. But uh, yeah, so they're not gonna do that again. <laughs> No thanks. Yeah. So you're saying there is no longer a light beam that is pointing north or pointing upward, not north. I don't think light upward. beam, but what he's saying is there's not a fire anymore. It was a torch. It was a fire. torch. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So maybe it was replaced with a light beam then. Well. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So my understanding, I thought that there was a, a beam of light mm-hmm. that um, that isn't lit every night, but it's lit 
for special occasions or for certain holidays, you know, Christmas, maybe they do it red and green. I, 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 again, I'm not from Seattle. Don't, yeah. from Seattle, don't know, but I thought there was, and I, I, so I'm wondering if that's still part of the uh, Space Needle. If it's a light, they probably kept that, but the, the fire, I'm Maybe pretty no sure. fire. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know there was some controversy over the, you know, call it light pollution. But, oh, from um, the... From the, from the beam. Oh, really? Huh. Yes. But again, don't know if it is still part of the upgrade or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you guys got anything else? I always find it, you know, when you see uh, there's so many different architecture firms, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then you see Olson Kundig Architects, which, you know, maybe is a... Like, where are they from? What's their background? Yeah. And what else have they done? And how do they get assigned or win the bid for such a... That's a pretty big name. For, yeah. Pretty big firm. Oh, Olson is? Yeah. Coming from the architect. I, I look I look more I look more at, like, the, the GC, like, the general contractor. Sure. Like, yeah. like, what kind of experience do you have in doing something 500 feet in the air? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they, like it's all in, you know, a lot of these things kind of trip me out because it's, like, all in theory, right? It's, like, engineering and it's problem solving and it's math. Mm-hmm. you know what i mean and it's like okay but have you done that before like sometimes the math lies you know what i mean like <laughs> that's that's where i that's where i get kind generally of generally the math doesn't lie well it depends <laughs> you know what i mean like it's all of it did until it was once proven you know what i mean i think the install is where things go crazy <laughs> no joke you know what i mean no joke because in theory it all makes sense it's like yeah we just have to do this this and this but yeah. the real question becomes well, how do you do that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and, and that's more so what I'm referring to. Yeah. Right. So the equation all makes sense. All the mathematics apply, but it's like, that's, manually that's getting, how do you manually get 37 tons worth of glass Yeah. up 500 feet? You yeah. know what I mean? And so I, I think that's the interesting part when you bring it to like a contractor and that like whoever this was, you said Hoffman or something like that, you know, like. He's like, oh yeah, we, we can do this. Yeah. Ho- Hoffman <laughs> you know? Construction Company. Um, I've heard of them before. Largest private company in the Portland area. Uh, largest construction company in Oregon. And the 33rd largest in the U.S. With $1.7 billion in revenues uh, as, of seven, as of 2017. But I agree. I mean, you could do it. And I think of, you know, we, have we done an episode on the casinos in Las Vegas? Or we could. Not yet. Yeah. Okay. Are we going to? Shh. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Don't want to give away things. <laughs> Listen in. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. You think about these, you know, general contractors mm-hmm. that are doing these gigantic, gigantic, gigantic projects um, well beyond anything that the three of us are, are doing. Because the other thing, too, is like when I look at the contractors, like, because we're working on several projects where you have a GC. Mm-hmm. The GC says they can do it, but they're not the ones that are doing it. Then they go and they bid out to all these other trades. You know what I mean? So the glass guy or whoever it is or the steel guy. And it's like, they're generally not taking the high bid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's always the scary thing to me. And I think there was a joke on a movie where somebody was like flying to space. And they were like strapped in a guy stressing out. And the other guy looks like, he's like, hey, relax. Yeah. Just remember, like, you're strapped to something that was like bid out to the lowest or was awarded to the lowest bidder. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. And that's the truth. Yeah. Because there's a budget and you have to make the budget work. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's an interesting thought. Yeah. You know, when you go into this stuff, so I don't, you know, it's it's also maybe that's why I don't like monuments and going up super high in buildings. You know what I mean? <laughs> that might be why. Yeah. But yeah. that's why. So we'll wrap this up. Maybe we'll get some comments from some people in Seattle 
that'll set us straight on a few things. <laughs> or uh, we love our needle or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a huge thank you to Brad Glauser of Edify Studios for contributing to this episode. If you haven't heard of them, Brad and his business partner, Brad Walker, assist with building envelope analysis, design, and execution. And they also have a podcast and YouTube channel as another avenue to deliver that education to the industry. So if you want more information or want to follow them, definitely worth the follow. Check out edify-studios.com. That's E-D-I-F-Y-studios.com. Thank you again for spending some time with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it and leave a review. It helps others find us. So it's all up to you. If you really love what we're doing, sharing us with your friends is even better. If you stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. And if you're still listening next time on Spaces Podcast. To me, community is much broader than that, and that does sort of tie into the planning background. It's about attitude. It's about citizen participation. It's about um, the public realm. It's about synergy between uses, uh, uh, and and all of that in terms of tying it into the design aspect. When you start putting pencil to paper, that really uh, I think does mean about a certain level of uniqueness and and authenticity to that place. And if you do that kind of correctly. Uh, it, it creates uh, places where people want to go. What are the societal changes that you've seen uh, affect community? Societal changes are just the surface of issues. Issues come from things that don't exist within a community that cause societal changes. I think the lack of resources and opportunity is the reason why there are issues within society. And when you don't have resources or the opportunities to either pursue an action, a dream, a business, when you don't have the information on how to sustain, then problems occur. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. 
from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.